The good news is that for the most part, we don't hunt whales anymore. Some species have actually come back from the brink of extinction. The bad news is that we are still killing them, mostly by plowing into them with our ships. But you can't really blame the ship captains. What is he going to do? He has an 800-foot-long ship. Let's say he sees a whale that's a half a mile in front of him. He has no chance whatsoever to avoid that whale. He can't stop. It could take a half hour or an hour for him to stop that ship. If only nonprofits, scientists, inventors, governments, and even the shipping companies could come together to devise a solution. If only we could use science and technology to save the whales. I'm David Pogue, and this is Unsung Science. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Season 2, Episode 21, How Cool Tech is Saving the Whales. Every year, my wife Nikki and I kidnap each other for our birthdays. Kind of a cute tradition. And in 2022, I kidnapped her to this adorable seaside community called Half Moon Bay, California. One gorgeous afternoon, we were walking along the famous beach there when Eagle Eye Nikki goes, oh, weird. She pointed way out to sea, directly in front of us. She saw this orb, this super weird sphere, light gray with ribs, bobbing up on top of the water. So we're on the beach at Half Moon Bay, and we see this massive thing coming toward the beach. Like some student maritime project? Is it alien spacecraft? Look at that mother. Wave by wave, it seemed to be coming straight toward us. Right at an alien. I took a picture of it and tweeted, This thing seems to be metal. No seabirds around. Any idea what it might be? There were some funny answers. E.T. Scout Ship. The Nautilus. A gigantic pill bug. And my favorite response, Poseidon's bike helmet. But as the thing got closer, the shiny surface started looking darker, and the sphere loomed bigger and bigger on the waves. Eventually, it ran aground just a few feet away from us at the edge of the beach. 
with a huge spray of mist, it suddenly deflated, turning from that weird spherical spaceship shape to the shape of a huge dead whale. A crowd gathered. Inevitably, a couple of dudes went up to it and took selfies with it. So it wasn't a spaceship, it wasn't a student project, it wasn't Poseidon's bike helmet, it was in fact a whale carcass, and now a tourist attraction. Nikki called the Marine Mammal Center in San Francisco to report the incident, and within hours, stories online filled in the blanks for us. This was a 17-year-old female humpback whale, and she'd been killed by a ship strike. But she wasn't just any humpback whale. She was the best-known, most-photographed whale in California. Her name was Fran, and she had been photographed so many times. We knew she was born in 1997. She was seen every single year. She was a very well-loved whale. This is Ted Cheeseman. He's the creator of a website called happywhale.com, an online photographic database of whales that ordinary citizens have spotted. He knew our whale. I guess a lot of people did. And what's really wild is that I did not interview him. You're listening to a completely unrelated CBS Sunday Morning interview with a different correspondent, Connor Knighton. Complete coincidence. Neither of these guys had any idea that I had witnessed Fran's final appearance. Well, so sadly, she was killed by a ship. She, was, she washed up, up in Half Moon Bay. She washed up ashore. We saw the fluke. We identified her, found out. Um, the Marine Mammal Center out of San Francisco did a necropsy, found out she'd been killed by a ship. Super sad, but we didn't know what had happened to her calf. That's right. Just a couple of months before she died, Fran had had a daughter. Her calf was named Aria. Got named Aria as a sort of a statement of hope. And then we didn't see Aria again after the after this was August 2022. Fran was killed, hadn't seen her calf. I'd already felt terrible about Fran, but I really grieved for Aria. This poor thing was only a few months old. No telling if she survived her mother's death. Honestly, I hadn't even known that ship strikes are a thing. But not only does it happen all the time, 2018, 2019, and 2021 were the worst years on record for ship strikes off the West Coast. 2020 is missing from that list only because the pandemic happened and shipping traffic dropped way off. We are gathered here today to talk about whales. Um, I think in the common perception People in the ancient days used to kill whales for their blubber and their oil. Uh, Have we stopped doing that? For the most part. Mark Baumgartner is a marine ecologist, a senior scientist at the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute. We're going to talk a lot today about the North Atlantic right whale. With only 340 whales, deaths in that population is really quite uh, concerning. So no, there's no commercial hunting for it. Wait a minute. So, so, So there are only 340 right whales... Live in the world. North Atlantic right whales, there are only 340 left. What happened to them? They're called the right whale, we believe, because they were the right whale to hunt. They were (gasps) slow-moving, coastal, and pretty easy to approach and kill, and they floated when you killed them. So you could literally see a right whale out, uh, out at sea, row your boat to them, harpoon them, 
hang on for a long time until the animal died and then tow them back to shore. Wow. So uh, blue whales, fin whales, humpback whales were too fast to be caught and killed. And if you killed them, they would sink. And so we weren't able to actually harvest those species until the invention of the exploding harpoon, which is right around the end of the uh, 19th century. Okay. But right whales had been hunted for a long, long time. The population is in a pretty uh, fast, serious, and very concerning decline since 2010. So from 500 animals just over 10 years ago to about 340. Okay, now don't hurt me, but why should we care about this one species out of the millions of species of critters? For a couple reasons, I think, David. This is an iconic species, one that we can all sort of look at. I can show a picture of a whale to a child and they know what it is. This species represents many, many, many other species that are not nearly so visible. The other reason is that whales provide these what we call ecosystem services that we don't even really fully appreciate. What's that mechanism? You mean they... Pooping. <laughs> nice to get a scientist who knows the lingo. <laughs> they eat, they poop, those nutrients become available for algae in the ocean to grow, plant, the plants of the ocean to grow, and, uh, and, and on and on goes Got the it. cycle. Okay, so whales perform an important service for the whole ocean, and they're a poster child for all the damage we're doing to the planet. Great. So how can we save them? Well, first, let's figure out why they're dying. So right whales tend to get uh, hit by ships and entangled in fishing gear. These are the two major causes of death. So we're killing them faster than they can reproduce at this point. All right, so ship strikes and nets. Fishing gear entanglements, not nets. So uh, it's common misperception that the nets that we tow through the ocean are dangerous for, for whales. They're not. If you've ever been to New England and you've gone out on the water or even just gone to the beach and looked out on the water during the summer, one of the most beautiful things you can see in New England is this field of lobster buoys. It's, those buoys are attached to ropes that go to the seafloor. It's those ropes that are called buoy lines or end lines or vertical lines that whales get entangled in. And because of the scale at which we are harvesting lobster and crab, there are m literally millions of these lines in the ocean. And they are each, in their own right, a, a whale trap. Has anyone not thought of a technological solution to these buoy lines for the lobster traps? In fact, they have. And there's uh, actually a lot of work being done on something called ropeless or on-demand fishing. Ropeless meaning just take those end lines away. So if you were fishing a lobster trawl and you want ropelessly or, or on demand, you would send an acoustic command down uh, specific for your gear and say, I'm here, I want my gear back. And it would, uh, the device on the seafloor would hear that and say, my fisherman's here, I'm gonna release my end line. End line would come to the surface, the fisherman would just pick it up as he normally would uh, a persistent end line. So that part for the last five years, that has sort of been developed, prototyped, demonstrated, that stuff works, and that's great. That's great progress. The next challenge is, is how do we find that gear? And that's a system that we're working very hard on to sort of advance, so the fishermen will just, they just look down on their chart plotter and they can see where all the gear is. And that's being developed today, and we're making good progress on that. Okay, that's great that they're working on saving the right whale, and that technology could soon save whales from getting killed by those lobster traps. But Fran wasn't a right whale, and she wasn't killed by a rope. She was hit by a ship. 
And that's a much harder problem to solve. Don't whales have some kind of sonar that lets them know that a massive ship is coming? Telling where a source is, a sound source is in the ocean, is a little, is a little more difficult than it is in air. Partly because the um, sound travels a lot faster underwater than it does in air. So if you and I went out, uh, put our heads underwater, and someone drove a boat at us, it would be very hard to tell uh, what direction that that boat is coming from. And that's crucial information to know to be able to get out of the way of the path of a ship. The nerdy science reason is because that low frequency noise has very long wavelengths that are much longer than the space between your ears. And so that directionalization is really hard. That's wild. So if you can't directionalize and you can't figure out how far away, it's really difficult for an animal to judge, okay, there's a risk here. Also, right whales are exposed to ship noise all the time. So whether a ship is close or far away, they're probably not paying attention because that's just what they hear all the time. Okay, so um, we've covered why the whale can't see the ship. Why can't the ship see the whale? Right. Whales are difficult to see at sea, believe it or not. Um, so if you've ever looked out on the ocean on a windy day, what do you see? You mostly see white caps. What does a whale look like when it comes to the surface? You know, when they exhale, it's white. That's difficult to see. But also, these ships can be enormous. Imagine a tanker that's six, 800 feet long and the, the bridge is in the back. So the captain is looking out over 800 feet of ship before he even gets to the first patch of water that's in front of the ship. And so being able to see out in front of the, in front of the ship well enough to be able to detect a whale is a problem. But then what is he gonna do? He has an 800 foot long ship. Let's say he sees a whale that's a half a mile in front of him. He has no chance whatsoever to avoid that whale. He can't stop. It's not like jamming on the brakes in your car and the car stops immediately. He can't turn. He's got a giant, giant vessel filled with cargo. If he turns too sharply, the whole ship will go over. So it's a real safety issue for them to divert course. And so even if the captain could identify that there's a whale out there, there's likely very little that that captain can do to avoid it. So the whales don't know they're about to be killed, and the ship doesn't know when it's about to kill one. In fact, so when a ship hits a whale, does the ship care? Most of the time they have no idea that they have run over a whale. And the crews that we've been talking to are really, really mortified by this. They uh, feel terribly when they discover there's a large, beautiful animal wrapped around the bow of their ship. They simply don't know. This is Sean Hastings, who works for NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. NOAA is the U.S. agency in charge of ocean policies. Sean Hastings oversees some of its California programs. He's also not one to shy away from a good dad joke or a bad dad joke. Um, well, you haven't asked me what is the most sustainable way to ship. Yeah. What is the most sustainable way to ship? Santa's sleigh. <laughs> We're going to edit that right out. But I left that in here so you wouldn't be super depressed as we head into the ad break. I mean, so far, it sounds like we're just going to keep hitting whales with ships, right? I mean, 95% of everything in your life was brought to America in a container ship. Those things make 200 million voyages a year. What chance do the whales have? I can answer that question. And I promise it's not depressing. 
Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Okay, so before the break, we were talking about whales dying without ever knowing what hit them. But we know what hit them. Ships. Also before the break, I had just introduced Noah's Sean Hastings, who's put together two solutions that just might work. So the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, uh, my parent agency, here off the California coastline, well, we recognized this threat a little over a decade ago of ships hitting whales. And so we started to work with industry, the shipping industry. We started working with scientists and all sorts of concerned parties to determine what could we do to reduce fatal ship strikes. And the two very somewhat obvious and best ways to mitigate the risk is one, separate ships and whales. And we have managed to adjust shipping lanes to move the ships farther offshore, concentrate shipping, ideally away from where we see the whales coming to feed May through November and December of every year. So separating the problem is the first step. And sure enough, In places in the world where governments have established alternate routes for the ships to take to avoid the whale feeding times and places, a lot fewer whales get hit. Mark Baumgartner has seen it firsthand. A good solution is just to move those shipping lanes around. That has happened outside the ports of Boston, as well as St. John in Canada, where I did my PhD research. It was an aggregation of right whales in in the Bay of Fundy, That would happen every single year and they'd be in the same place. And there was a major shipping lane that went right through that area. So changing the the route added maybe 15 minutes to the ship's transit, but it reduced the risk of a ship strike by about 80%. And so, yes, driving around the whales really works. Yay! The thing is, you can't always do that. The geography of the land masses and oceans don't always offer room for alternate pathways into the harbor. In those situations, the ships have no choice but to plow right through the whale feeding areas. In those cases, according to Hastings, there's plan B. So the second best approach that we're working on now is to slow ships down. 
by slowing ships down. It gives the whales more opportunity to get out of the way. And in the event that they are struck, there's a higher likelihood of survival ship. This is much akin to having a slow speed zone around a school. So how fast does a ship normally go and how much are you trying to get them to slow down? They're traveling about 15 knots and that's roughly about 18 miles per hour. And what we're asking them to do is to slow down to 10 knots or about 12 miles per hour when they're coming through uh, these critical whale feeding zones. A slower ship would reduce the impact of a fatal ship strike by up to 50%. Now on the East Coast, where those 340 remaining right whales are struggling to survive, slowing down during whale season is mandatory. On the West Coast though, Noah asked the shipping lines if they'd be willing to slow down voluntarily. It was a bust, nobody bothered. So Noah decided to sweeten the pot. So we decided to change the approach and we started to incentivize shipping companies to slow down off the California coast, May through December. We offered positive public relations, not shaming. We offered modest financial incentives if they cooperated at high levels. And what we've seen over the last 10 years is tremendous growth in cooperation. We recognize them with certificates and plaques, uh, lots of positive press. And um, what we're really heartened by is while we offered financial incentives uh, in the past, most of the companies are declining the financial incentive. They're not doing it for the money. They're doing it because they know it's the right way to move the world's goods. Wow. The other thing to mention is that slower ships emit less air pollution and reduce the amount of greenhouse gases they emit uh, out of their stacks. Shipping globally accounts for three to five percent of uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So there's a lot of co-benefits here to uh, having ships adjust their schedules as they come to the California coast. Reducing fatal ship strikes on endangered whales, reducing air emissions, greenhouse gases, and also ocean noise. The name of this voluntary program is Blue Whales, Blue Skies, and it was Sean Hastings' brainchild. We're seeing cooperation across all shipping lines at around 65 to 70% of the total distance they travel uh, off California at 10 knots. That's really, really promising. We still have a ways to go. We need cooperation rates at 100% to fully mitigate the impacts of ship strikes and air pollution from ships. So 65 to 70% of the ships are complying with the slowdown periods. Among the ones who are not complying, do you have any idea what they're thinking, what their stance is? They claim that they can't adjust their schedule to accommodate for the slow speed zones and slow speed timeframes. A key problem is that the slow speed zones are dynamic. The government makes these zones come and go, appear and disappear, depending on where the whales are. Mark Baumgartner from Woods Hole describes the problem like this. So if you're a, a vessel that's traveling from Europe to the United States and you only have another day of steaming to go and you have all the resources at the port set up so that when you come in at nine o'clock tomorrow, the longshoremen will be there, all the trucks will be there, everything will be ready to offload your ship, the cargo on your ship. Today, this morning, a slow zone goes up. You have to slow down to 10 knots. I'm, going to, I'm not gonna be getting to port tomorrow at nine o'clock, I'm gonna be getting there at one o'clock. Now, 
all those resources are just sitting there doing nothing for four hours, and there's a cost associated with that. And so for that reason, the commercial shipping industry is, is really not embracing these dynamic speed zones. So the government is considering much more expanded mandatory ship speed slowdowns for the entire uh, U.S. East Coast during the wintertime. And so it's a big deal that's happening right now. If a shipping company knows that in the last 100 miles of their trip, they're going to have to slow to 10 knots, they can plan for that. As they're coming across, they could speed up in the deep ocean and then slow down, you know, closer to shore. They're logistics companies. This is what they do. And so they can figure out a way to get to port exactly on time if everyone knows what the slowdown rules are. So the mandatory system is almost better, mandatory in the sense that it's predictable, yeah. is almost better for the, for the shipping industry. Does it have a chance of becoming law? I don't know. Okay, so maybe two-thirds of the shipping traffic is voluntarily slowing down to save whale lives. That's pretty good. But not a single ship will slow down unless Noah can tell them that whales are nearby. So the success of the entire system depends on one little piece of data. Where are the darn whales? It's not like they're always in one place at one time. It's not like there's, you know, a bar where all the humpbacks gather on Friday nights. Well, one way to look for them is from the air. So once a month, Sean Hastings gets into a tiny plane and flies over the California shipping channels, looking out the windows for whales. I joined him and his colleague, Jess Morton, on one of these flights. Oh, I got gray whales. I haven't seen gray whales in a long time. Oh my God, incredible. Very close to the surface. So cool. Very cool. Once this little plane landed, Hastings and Morton immediately reported the whale sightings to the participating ships so they'd know it was time to slow down. However... I can't be there all the time looking for these whales. I fly once a month. That's one day a month. That's one day at a point. They desperately needed some way of monitoring the whale's presence 24 hours a day. If they had that, they could feed the real-time information to incoming ships, who could then slow down and save the whales. And this, really, is my favorite part of the story. I'm going to let Callie Leaphart tell it to you. I am a project scientist at the Benioff Ocean Science Laboratory. That would be Benioff, as in Mark Benioff, the software billionaire who started this ocean science lab with his wife to find, quote, solutions to restore ocean health. And in the case of the whale data problem, they worked with the Woods Hole Institute to come up with a buoy, a big yellow buoy. The surface buoy itself is almost like a small car, like a very, like a VW bug. Like it's, it's really big for a buoy. And they are actually battery operated. So they are designed to be autonomous at sea and operate without anyone having to go and, you know, mess with it, hopefully, for at least a year. So we have this big, beautiful yellow buoy that sits on the surface. In 600 feet underwater, we have a base that has a hydrophone, so an underwater microphone that is actually hooked up to a software that is trained to say, that's a blue whale, that's a fin whale, that's a humpback whale. And we're getting all of those detected vocalizations in real time. So this microphone can tell the difference between different whale songs? Yep. If they are vocalizing in and around the shipping lanes, we're gonna detect it. And so that data is all sent to our system in 
you know, 10 minute increments. It's almost like weather forecasting for blue whales. So if I'm a ship coming over from China, I will have some kind of screen or app or alert that says, I see a whale nearby? That's a call, a text, an email, however that company best sees fits to communicate with their fleet. So if I'm a ship captain, I have a really nice understanding of it's a medium, high, very high whale presence rating in the Santa Barbara Channel. The Benioff folks have now deployed two of these buoys, one in Santa Barbara, one in San Francisco. But there's no reason the technology couldn't be replicated everywhere. On the East Coast, in Woods Hole, Mark Baumgartner uses similar buoys to listen for whale song and warn incoming ships. Can we hear what these sound like? Sure. This is a right whale sound. So right whales make an upsweep. Yeah. We can uh, detect those uh, pitch tracks really well. That call is basically a, what we think of as a contact call. It's, is anyone out there? And it might even be, is anyone out there? This is Mark. Oh. It might be individually identifiable oh. for the animals. Everyone knows humpback whale songs. They are some of the most commonly known and they're, they're really beautiful. It's males that are doing this singing behavior, and they're likely transmitting information to either other males or females to say how big I am, how fit I am, maybe we'd like to get a drink later, right? It's all the things that men do to attract women is encoded in that song. So the last piece of this I'll show you is just those 20, those fin whale 20 hertz calls. These are very low frequency. This is sped up 24 times. Mm. like the metronomes of the sea. It's a much simplified version of singing, but it's still a pattern of notes that conveys some information. Baumgartner's team also has a fleet of seven of what he calls gliders, like seven-foot-long self-powered torpedoes, also equipped with whale microphones. They follow a programmed course in the ocean, listening for whales for four months on a battery charge. I do notice that on each of these, you've written in Sharpie your phone number and email address. If found, leave at sea. Yes, yeah, so we've had some interesting experiences where uh, mariners have found them miraculously and been able to get them on board and they take them home. Now we're tracking it, of course. It has a GPS and it's sending us its position every two hours. So we know if someone puts it in their car and takes it home, we know exactly where they live. <laughs> Uh, so we go to their house, knock on the door, and say, can we have our glider back? You know what's even cooler? This whale safe program doesn't just send the whales in the house alert to ship captains. They also post the data to a public website, whalesafe.com. You can look at it whenever you want. You can look at it right now, whalesafe.com. The site shows exactly how many of each kind of whale are in each major California shipping channel right now. That site also shows you, by the way, a complete list of all the different shipping companies and what percent of the time they respond to the alerts by slowing down. WhaleSafe even gives them letter grades. Some companies get Fs, the ones with zero compliance, who don't slow down at all in the whale zones, like Eagle Bulk Shipping, 
Wu Yang Shipping, and Atlantis Management, Inc. Then there are the good guys, the companies who get A's. Since good press is one of the incentives for these companies to comply, um, here's our chance. Would you be willing to give us the names of some shipping lines that are doing well? Oh, absolutely. MSC has been the uh, leader in our ship program for the last three or four years, mm. slowing down close to 90% of their entire fleet in these whale zones. We have Evergreen, Maersk, Hapag Lloyd. These companies are really demonstrating by example that they care. You may not have heard of MSC because the company doesn't do much consumer advertising, but it happens to be the world's largest shipping company. It operates in 1,500 ports in 155 countries. We have about 750 cargo ships, 23 cruise ships, maybe 800 in total of various types. Bud Dar runs maritime policy and government affairs for MSC. I'll start by saying there's no one in our industry that wants to see any one of these magnificent creatures harmed or killed by anything we do. And we're a company full of seafarers, too. If you look at the leadership structure of our company, we believe in this very, very deeply. And if we can find a way that has manageable operational impacts, but it improves our environmental footprint, we're looking for those sorts of solutions every single day. I know you're not speaking for your competitors, but if you had to guess, what would the downside be of taking some of these whale protective steps for them? Well, it depends on which one you're talking about. There is, of course, in speed reduction, there is some impact on the schedule. There is some impact on, on costs that probably comes with that. And that takes a lot of sophistication and planning to mm. you know, mitigate that and get that right. But you know, I really think for the most part, this is more an issue of a lack of understanding than it is a lack of willingness to do the right thing once they do understand. And I've seen the right signs. I mean, I've seen certain ship owners from nationalities that haven't always known to be as whale-friendly as some others, you know, actually embracing this and working with us to try and find solutions. And so things are looking up. The mandatory slowdowns on the East Coast are giving the right whales a fighting chance of survival. The voluntary slowdowns on the West Coast are helping out the blue whales, fin whales, and humpbacks. Unfortunately, none of these experts can tell you exactly how successful these programs are. They can't even tell you exactly how many whales get killed every year, for one simple reason. Most whales sink once they die. Here's Callie Leapart. For every one whale that we see floating or washed up on our beaches, we can almost estimate that 10 is happening for every one that we're seeing. Internally, is there any anxiety over the fact that you can't really count how well it's working? I want to put my head down at night and say, I saved five whales today. The ocean's just too large and too dynamic, right, to be able to really pinpoint that. So we have to find these other ways to measure success and wins. More ships that slow down, the less likelihood we are going to have these fatal strikes compared to those worst years that we've had in California. We've seen a dip since then. That's also a good sign. A dip in confirmed in strikes. confirmed strikes, yes. But still too many, you know. So it's a win, but we're not quite, you know, to the finish line yet. Eventually, Sean Hastings hopes to find ways for you to help too, through your buying habits and your awareness of the good and bad players. Do I, as a consumer, have any way of knowing when I pick up a package? Not yet. 
and what we're working on and what I would see in the future, in the future, next holiday season, look for a whale tail symbol. Look for a symbol that says this was shipped across the ocean sustainably. So there is a logo program in the works. We're working on a campaign to raise brand awareness as well as consumer awareness. You know what else you can do? Ping your elected officials. Future regulations are probably necessary to close the gap between 70% cooperation and 100% of the ships slowing down off the coast. It's good for us, good for the whales, and it's not gonna impact industry. So I do see a future uh, with speed regulation as being necessary. Great. I think that logo idea would make a big difference. We've done our homework. Dolphin yeah. Safe Tuna, Fair Trade Labor, Organics. Um, one of our ideas is to offer to the, the greatest performing crew and ship, paint a whale tail on their bow. Oh! So that they receive the recognition as well as coming under the Golden Gate and you take that lovely walk with your wife and instead of seeing a floating whale, you see a whale tail emblem on a ship. That would be nice. Because I'm still really affected by having seen Fran wash ashore with a huge gash in her spine. And ever since that day, I've sometimes thought about her baby, Aria. Remember that interview with Ted Cheeseman of happywhale.com, the one that one of my Sunday morning colleagues had done for a story of his own? His producer passed that audio file along to me just as I was putting this episode to bed, and I could not believe what it contained. An update to the story of Fran the Humpback Whale and her orphaned daughter, Aria. Some really amazing news. Somebody sent me the photo from out on a ship. They texted it to me from on the ship in Monterey Bay. Just like, I think this is Aria. Can you confirm it? And it was just just joy, just celebration. It was, uh, it was just delightful. You know, I, okay, it's a bit nerdy, right? But I started calling people and texting people that had known Fran, that had seen Aria. I saw the calf. Their calf survived, you know. Too many of the things that we do to the ocean are out of sight, out of mind. Until we can reach out there and see what we're doing and care about it, we're not going to change what we do. And quite frankly, we've done a lot. We've done a lot to change the way we interact with the ocean. And it's because people care. just listened to another episode of Unsung Science with David Pogue. Don't forget that the entire library of shows, along with written transcripts, await at unsungscience.com. This podcast is a joint venture of Simon & Schuster and CBS Sunday Morning, and it's produced by PRX Productions. For Simon & Schuster, the executive producers are Richard Rohrer and Chris Lynch. The PRX production team is Jocelyn Gonzalez, Morgan Flannery, Pedro Rafael Rosado, and Morgan Church. Jesse Nelson composed the Unsung Science theme music. Our fact checker is Christina Ribello, and Olivia Noble fixed the transcripts. For more of my stuff, visit davidpogue.com or follow me on Twitter at Pogue. That's P-O-G-U-E. We'd love it if you'd like and follow Unsung Science wherever you get your podcasts. And spread the word, will you? If you like Unsung Science, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey.
Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on the 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.